2: I'm walking in a little, almost totally forgotten valley near Abergavenny and the Brecon Beacons and uh, not many people come here because it's a dead end really and occasionally the local landowner bars the entrance but it is a public footpath and it's a fantastic autumn day must be about eight o'clock in the morning might be able to hear Red Wings going overhead Silp, silp, and the tree is golden, it's late November, so everything is really close to being leafless. There's lots of hazels and beech and oak along this waterway and some alder, so there's lots of different colours. There's a buzzard calling above me, quite a tusky meadow leading down to a little stream which you can hear in the background. And in among the ant hills and uh, the tussocks, there are loads of fungi. Lots of different species which I don't recognise. My name is Fergus Collins and I'm the host of the podcast, the Nature and Countryside podcast from BBC Countryfile magazine. And we're coming near to the end of our Histories and Mysteries season. Uh, I've come to this valley because I thought it was a great place to introduce our next guest a great countryman, John Wright, who lives in Dorset. And in this episode, he takes us out into some local woodlands and fields to explore the world of... incredibly mysterious world of fungi, mushrooms, toadstools, moulds and lichens. And really, he wants to show us that even in late autumn and winter, the countryside has many wonders that you can find. He's with our good old friend Kevin Parr, who also lives in Dorset. So this is a bit of podcast magic, these two. Now John has, appropriately for this season, a new book out called A Spotter's Guide to Countryside Mysteries, published by Profile Books. And so that's what he's doing, really, is just telling us all to take a bit of time on walks and really look a bit closer at some of the things you might overlook as I pass great swathes of interesting-looking wax-capped fungi, so I wish John was here with me, but lucky enough he's here with Kevin and I hope you enjoy this lovely adventure in the autumn countryside
0: It's middle, well late autumn almost we're we're well into November it's a very dank grey day it's mild Um, it's a lot wetter than was promised and I'm in Dorset, West Dorset, in the company of John Wright, who is, well, known to many as a writer, as a broadcaster, as a furniture maker originally, um, known to an awful lot of people for um, forays and for his work with River Cottage, um, but certainly in recent years I think a naturalist and writer is probably a good description, would you say, John? Yeah, I'm, I'm happy with that. I've been called worse things. Excellent. <laughs> and John's taking me to a spot, even though I live I live locally, about and I've done for ten years or so. I'm being taken to a spot I've yet to visit, so I'm quite excited myself as to what we might see. So um, I shall check in when we get there. Well the journey's been epic. it's taken us all of five minutes I'd have thought <laughs> and I, and for somewhere I haven't been before this is this is pretty special John Gigi you...
1: yeah, yeah we're at the top of a hill just off the main road, and um we're looking down through the mist, I must say at uh, it's probably my favorite site in the world um i just as you learn things and you live in places you really get to love them and this is a place well, really it's a place I love most. Um, it's uh, a Chalk Downland. I love living on the chalk. It always feels like living on a cloud somehow because really nice yeah. um, and, um, and this is one of the most remarkable spots I know and it's not just because I'm particularly fond of it but it's uh, an unusual chalk uh, grassland Very special, very ancient chalk grassland, and you have all the things you would expect to find, most of the things you would expect to find, Uh, but you get something else. Of course, I'm I'm famous for my, well, reasonably famous for my interest in fungi. Um, We have fungi here which grow in grassland, which you would normally expect to grow in woodland. Oh, wow. Yeah, and uh, we'll be be seeing this closely later, but... uh, uh, you get Beletes, um, Belitus belete, luridus grows here, you get Pantacap, uh, Amanita pantherina, yeah. uh, several, uh, one or two Lactaria species, and uh, a and, and, uh, Tricholoma species, these are all sp- genera groups of fungi which you would expect mm-hmm. to find in woodland because they are mycorrhizal so they have an association with a tree. But it doesn't have to be a tree, it can be a woody plant. And we look at the grassland here, I mean you can't see apart from the gorse bushes, you can't really see much in the way of uh, shrubby vegetation, but in fact there's a lot there and this is the helianthanum the rock rose. Uh, because it's a grazed landscape the helianthanum has been selected is kept short and has been selected for very low height that is mycorrhizal has a mycorrhizal relationship with with these uh, with these species and you can get beliefs you know four five six inches in diameter living entirely off of these uh plants which you know from the, you know, to the average untutored to die just looks like a sort of patch of grassland fantastic oh that, this is i'm intrigued <laughs> I mean, Yes. And these are, as I
0: said, I, I, I'm a very, 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 very amateur um, fungi expert myself, and and yeah, I, I'm recognise a uh, Bolitus luridus, and and certainly, yeah, I'd I'd, sit, I'd look for it under probably oat normally, yeah. but but so be incredible to find it out here, and certainly this is even though it's misty and there's a lot of dampness, it's a coom that we're looking down upon that's sort of sweeping round in front of us to the left. It's quite deep. It's quite a sharp drop down. It's yeah. Um,
1: it's a steep. It's a steep place, and you kind of know, um, you know, when you have to walk up and down these uh, these chalk, chalk <laughs> hills. Uh, we actually used to live in the house. You can just see, uh, Kevin, to the uh, to our left. Yeah. Right? You can just about see where it is. Anyway, it's uh, uh it actually wasn't that house. I think our house uh, fell down. We were there for three and a half, four years, uh, just renting it out. Um, and, uh, and we were so poor in those days, we didn't have a car. Um, and if we wanted to buy anything, we had to walk down this hill, which is quite steep, yeah. uh, through the woods, which you can see in the distance, which is sort of yes. uh, uh, carpets one side of the, uh, one of the one of the coombs, um, across a couple of fields at the top, down the driftway and uh, into the village, two miles altogether. Now well, that was uh, bad enough, but of course there's two hills to climb. Uh, On the way back, Uh, so it was a two-mile over, very serious, honestly laden, fully laden. You you were really choosy what you (laughs) what you bought. You know, you didn't buy tins of baked beans. You know, you buy dry baked dried beans and um, make it yourself. I bet it was a uh, a great experience.
0: Uh, And you did mention briefly that you had something to do with this place being assigned
1: as a national nature reserve. Yes, it's an NNR. and uh, yeah, we, we were evicted, not because we were bad tenants, but uh, because the farmer, who was a, a great character, he was straight out of the 18th century, out of Tom Jones, brilliant. a transport. Transplanted unchanged into the middle of the 20th century, as is we're talking 30, 40 years ago now. Um, he was secretary of the hunt and he kept it for um, more, more for his foxes than for his. He had a breeder, herd of cattle, uh, you know, he looked after his cattle very well, but uh, ultimately it was the foxes he cared about. Right. But uh, he was secretary of the hunt and, and the hunt would often uh, meet up here. Uh of course that's that's gone now. But um uh we were evicted and uh and the farm is to be sold and I have come to love this place so much and realised it's um how special it was. And really I just I lost sleep, I had nightmares about it, um wow. about it going under the plough. And we spoke to a friend of mine down down the road, farm worker Alan, and he said, "Oh yeah it'll be good when they come up. he said they've get those busters going up and down those uh, those oh. those hills and uh, he said oh, and they'll, they'll, they'll' put it over for uh, for, for lawn turf uh, and it sort of broke my heart. I got in touch with Uh, natural England as they are now and they weren't particularly interested, it didn't show up on any map as being a a particular interest, as a sort of loan cap on the top which arguably uh, affects its value, but I came out here with, uh, but eventually they they took an interest and came out and uh, and they sort of realised what I meant and uh, what well, a long story short, and a lot of anxiety. I, I did, I did a bit of survey work and sent them a species list. Um, you know, not, it was a particularly good one, but they came to love it like I did. Fantastic. And I kind of washed my hands of it because I didn't want to know. I didn't want to know what was happening. The next thing I knew, they bought it outright. They actually bought it over the off of the farmer who bought it from uh, Commander Air. Um, uh, but it's been saved, and it's 200 acres. They bought some wow. on the other side of the hill as well. Uh, we lost a few of the top fields, which were probably hadn't been uh, ploughed very long before, maybe 30, 20, 30 years before. We lost a lot of field mushrooms that way, but which is a terrible shame. But the really important stuff is here. It's beautiful.
0: Brilliant. What a fantastic story. That's that's lovely. And now we're gonna we'll go and take a closer look. <laughs> Trouble. Um. That's always a good start. We've, um, we have just wandered. It was a part up. We just wandered slightly to the sort of southeast um, and found some people working, which is great. We're here from Natural England on we behalf of Natural.
4: For Natural England. Yeah, we're contractors, but we are working today for Natural England.
0: And you're obviously you're just clearing bramble, clearing bramble
4: and light scrub. This area's been cleared beforehand a few years ago, so really it's just. Clearing it again before it starts to develop into denser, thicker scrub and, and woodland. Yeah. Keeping it open. Trying to reverse it, ideally, back to chalk grassland. That would be the
0: ideal. Fantastic. I think John, when we got here, was worried about where you might be burning, in case it was going to be on the turf itself. No, no, but these sites are always selected, so they, they cause
4: minimal environmental impact onto the, uh, onto the turf and you've got a fair bit more to do there's loads i mean you could spend all winter here doing various things really but we're contracted to do a certain number of, of man days so okay we're here all week um doing more of the same here really but uh in various other locations within within the site and quite a nice fire which is probably welcome on well, a it, dank it, day yeah, like this it's nice to have a fire tricky today with it being so so wet but uh when we move on to do the more woody areas that should be a lot easier. It yeah. Absolutely. More
0: Thank you very much. That's we'll alright. We'll let you crack on. on. Enjoy your walk. <laughs> Thank Enjoy you. your mushrooms. <laughs> there's almost a bit of brightness, we can see where the sun is, and there's a lovely sweep we're in a comb that is sweeping round. Well it it could be 360 degrees, but it's not that quite that far, I don't think. And this lovely slope we're on which is um, dotted with wax caps. And which we will talk about. I won't. I won't get John to talk too much about mushrooms because you're currently sort of interested in all sorts of matters that you might stumble upon in the countryside. And you're, you've just had a book published, the Spotter's Guide to Countryside Mysteries. I believe it. Is that the that, title?
1: That's the one. Really, it's a reflection of my own experience, and I guess the experience of most people who walk through the countryside is you're always finding stuff where you go what is that? You yeah. Know, you know, how did that get there? It could be, it could be an agricultural relic, you know, some fire, some Field system, some um, something that's obviously connected with farming, where the the purpose for it um, has been forgotten, has been lost. I mean, just just below us here, there's a little cutout. There's basically yes. a hole in the ground. Holes in the ground are particularly tricky uh, because you never really work out uh, what it is. I guess it's a chalk pit, but uh, okay. uh, <laughs> we're on chalk. Uh, well, they they just uh, brought some up and maybe uh, use it to make lime. If you've got lime kilns in the, a lime kiln just up from the village. Yeah, so yeah, it could be anything. It could be it could be an agricultural relic. It could be uh, something entirely natural. Um, things like uh, like galls. Um, it could be uh, a, a slime mold. People see slime molds and uh, they think uh, you know what is that? It doesn't look like anything. It doesn't, yes. like, doesn't fit into their conception uh, of what the natural world consists of. It looks like a sort of sticky, slimy, nasty stuff growing on a bit of grassland yeah. or, or across a log. Uh, it could be an unusual plant like, um, like dodder, which is a parasitic or, or the broom rapes. So these are things that don't have any chlorophyll because they don't need it because they're paras- parasitizing. Um, it, could be, um, it could be a flower which instead of being yellow in the middle is black, and that would be a smart fungus you know, most people pass these things by as unknowns, maybe they don't notice them at all well, I've taken, oh gosh, maybe a thousand maybe twelve hundred wild food forays over the last thirty or so years, and people are often bringing me, okay it's a mushroom for me, they bring me a mushroom, or, or point out a mushroom for me to see, uh, but it could be something else they say, what's this, you know, is this something growing on this leaf, what is it? I'll oh, tell so that suspangle in Arnold Oakley. right. Uh, so people do think, and they yes. do wonder. This book answer answers around about 50 of these questions. This is a. I, th- I would like to say it's a lifetime's work, but the experience is yeah. a lifetime one. Where every time I go into the countryside, I see something and I don't know what it is, and I have to find out because Brilliant. I am. I just get very cross with myself. I don't <laughs> you know. Don't know. <laughs>
0: perfect and we'll walk on and avoid the wax caps of which there are several varieties that john can name oh i believe i certainly can't although i can tell a snowy wax cap when i see we've walked back a short distance i think there are crows in the distance but a few birds beginning to move now the the uh, day's lifting a touch there's a lovely view up to um a sort of wooded valley that I'm guessing
1: pushes on round this this rise here, does it? Yes, it sort of disappears behind the hill. We call that Camel Hill. I don't know, it's got a hump on it, I suppose. <laughs> Most hills could be called Camel Hill. Camel yeah, okay, really. okay, absolutely. <laughs> uh, yeah, this is like a, a coppice, really. Um, it's a coppice in the flat bit, flatter bits. The uh, um, the steeper slopes have been taken over by, well, formerly elm, um, now ash and oak. I guess it would be soon be saying formerly ash as well, yeah. which is a, a great shame. Uh, but uh, you know, the coppice, uh, it was coppice fairly recently uh, cut back, and uh, so it, it's, it's a lively coppice and very very interesting. I must show you that. Uh, can you see that? Well, it's a very distinct ring. It's not yes. Complete yes. Of uh, well, they're mushrooms. Of course, they're mushrooms. Yeah, a ring of yeah. mushrooms. Um, I. I, I could have always known how they uh, occur, but people are always asking me, must have been asked a hundred times, why do they grow in rings? I, sadly, and I hate to ruin it for anybody, but it's nothing to do with fairies. Oh, oh yeah. sorry. I oh, know. Um, <laughs> I'm going home. It, it's kind of obvious when you get to, to hear about it. Um, it's, it's just that the spores land in one, space, uh, one particular place uh they fuse they'll grow they feed uh, of course if you're in one place there's only one way to go uh, to feed and that is outwards yeah as they feed they all die off in the middle and you end up with the ring of mycelium remember that yes all, but what we can see over there they're the fruiting bodies they're not the fungus themselves that's just the reproductive organ the fungus itself is underground and it just grows out and it grow out about four or four 10 centimetres 150 centimetres yeah. a year um, that's quite a large one that's probably about 50 metres across it's yeah, really quite enormous one um and uh, it's like, you can sort of date it really must be um God, i can't do it off the top of my head 100 200 years oh wow years. goodness me they can they can grow re- one of the eight most ancient things uh, that grow anywhere uh, uh, And that's all it is. You probably will have seen uh, a mushroom ring even when there's no mushrooms there. Yes, yes, indeed, in the grass, yeah. Because it changes the uh, soil chemistry as they pass over an area. They've digested the organic matter, absorbed it into their substance, uh, and they release inorganic. Uh, nutrients, and that stimulates the growth of grass and you often get um, just behind the mushrooms where the mushrooms will be you'll get a ring of uh, verdant grassland and vegetation because it's been stimulated to grow so it's very much symbiotic the, the relationship between the
0: the fungi and the grasses do you think
1: i don't know i don't think the grass is all that keen right on what happens to it. i yeah it does release nutrients I suppose, yeah, I suppose you could say it's just a rotting fungus like any other i uh, sometimes it isn't uh, because uh, there's one particular one people hate in their gardens um, you get mushroom rings in your garden almost invariably it's going to be the fairy ring champignon um, yes. and that is a very short mushroom it only grows barely you know two two or three centimeters tall and uh, if you're a short mushroom, determined to spread your spores to the four winds, what you don't want to be is thick in a thatch of grass. No. You do know I mean? deep down because the spores won't blow anywhere. They kill the grass. They actually produce cyanide, hydrogen cyanide gas, and kill the grass. Wow. So you have this sort of brown patch, which uh, people really hate on their lawns. I, they say, well, how do I get rid of it? I say, well, you can't, and uh, stop moaning about it. And you're lucky because you can eat them as well. Oh, They're yeah. very tasty. Absolutely. <laughs> so fairy rings which aren 't aren 't the work
0: of fairies which i I must admit i probably I probably knew deep down, but i just didn 't want yeah. to admit to
1: myself you were living in hope
0: oh, you? absolutely yeah. i'm always dreaming, but we'll walk on are we going to head towards those woods yeah.
1: don't let me tell you about father Christmas will you
0: well he's coming soon now yeah. i mean he's yes yes he is uh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. i we're stepping down the slope and John's rattling out Latin words that, that might just be nonsense he might be, he might be speaking in tongues but um, equally he's, he's finding some, some fantastic looking mushrooms and then we've come across well it looks
1: a bit like <laughs> sick. But it isn't cat-sick. No, no, it's not cat-sick, although sometimes it's called the dog-sick fungus. Uh-huh. Well, it's not dog-sick, and it's not a fungus, it's a slime mould. So I really wasn't expecting to see one of these so late in the year. They tend to be, uh, but it's been very mild. They tend to be a little bit earlier. Um, there's three or four patches of these. These are re- re- a fairly average size. They're quite small, about uh, 10 centimetres, maybe 15 centimetres across. Um, they have sort of it looks as like someone's dropped some uh, some porridge on the yeah, grass. Yeah, it does, it's does actually porridge, and that's a nicer thought than cats. Yeah, if you get it. it, if you get it, and when it's very young, it looks like just like scrambled egg. I mean, oh, really, wow. really nice great. If you had that on your plate for breakfast in a restaurant, you'd be thrilled. To be <laughs> at that hotel or something. Uh, so this is a slime mould. Um, and uh, these things actually move around. They crawl around the grass. It's, uh, oh, really? Yeah, it's, uh, it's very, very difficult to explain, but it's lots of cells which are all uh, connected uh, sort of chemically, I suppose. Uh, really, it's a, it's a kind of giant cell with lots of nuclei. Uh, right. And there's, there's no real... Uh, it does, doesn't, uh, this is one of those things that really doesn't fit in most people's conception of the, of the natural world. Uh, these are just starting to change colour, which means they, they have fed and they will—they produce these substantial blobs which will crust over and you'll get a mass of black spores underneath and that will blow away in the wind and they will grow somewhere else. Amazing. Uh, this one's a—it's uh, it, quite large. I've seen them here uh, a metre across. Wow. But, I mean, it can be quite enormous. And you can see they're a metre across and they move about. They're, only, yeah, they're kind of a bit worrying, but <laughs> they, don't, they, don't, they don't move fast. You can always outrun one, you so can. don't worry. I'm not sure I could. But um, but but it's just an
0: incredible thought. So so if you, I mean, you set up a sort of stop motion camera, you'd. I mean, how long would you need to take photographs to capture a movement? Yeah, I think you'd be here for a while. Okay, <laughs> so not
1: something we'd do sort of, before lunch time. Yeah. And I'm sure you want to know the latter name. I, is, d- I do. This is Musilago crustacea. Crustacea Thanks. because of the crust it forms okay. in the end. Thanks. Musilago because it is slimy
0: fantastic
1: amazing stuff and,
0: and well this is precisely of course the the kind of mystery that you're you're solving
1: yeah there's a whole chapter in the book uh, de- devoted to slime molds uh, I mean this is just one of uh, many that I'm actually there aren't all that many compared to um, fungi say uh, there's probably only a thousand species of slime mold in the world oh, wow. um uh, but uh yeah i mean this is uh it's a lovely one uh it's spectacular but you get more, much more colorful ones i've seen purple ones orange ones are very common and a uh, yellow one yellow one the texan blob as it was once named after a, a load of them and sort of uh, started taking over the People's backyards in Texas, presumably, well. up, presumably <laughs> after a lot of rain, and of course they they thought, and I not unreasonably, I thought, mm. uh, I felt that they were sort of an alien invasion. They do feel alien somehow. Yes, yeah, I can I can
0: yeah, I think I can let them have that.
1: We've we've come to the
0: edge of the woods um, where it's a little less windy, although the the sound of the workmen is still bouncing around. Oh, there's a blackthorn, let the look of it. Filled with sloes and uh, John's found something more
1: interesting. Yeah, this is something which is ridiculously common. You will have seen it a thousand times, ten thousand times, and it's—I guess—it's the commonest of the rust fungi. Rust fungi are those things that people pass by. Uh, generally speaking, they're orange. This isn't one of the orange ones, but uh, it's found on bramble leaves. Of course, bramble oh, leaves are right. uh, here right into the winter. They don't all. Uh, some sort of partially deciduous shrub yeah. um, and we can see the very distinct um, uh, discoloration and little structures underneath the leaf which is the spore producing bodies uh, let's have pull that in. Uh, As far as most things concern, this is just a, a bramble leaf which looks a bit well, in the words of my daughter's manky. Yeah, it has gone <laughs> off. Yeah, I, but I, I always think that hedgerows and indeed woodlands aren't really very interesting when they're in fresh growth. No, it's only when you get towards well into the summer uh, and into the autumn they actually become interesting. They're actually diseased. But um, you always think of diseases as bad thing and of course, if you're a bramble, you'll probably think the same. Uh, but you know, you know, rust fungi are life, like everything else, and they deserve their their, their chance. And then we can wow. st- I can just turn the leaf over; it's sort of purpley on top. And it's, uh, the fungus is called Fragmidium uh, violaceum, and you can see these little uh, black. This is one of the series of spore-producing bodies that they uh, produce. Uh, if you find it another time, they would be purple. Yeah. Um, so they're
0: very, and they're tiny little black spots that yeah, and now drop off presumably as and when
1: they... Well, they produce the spores from there. That's probably I the see. I that's see. probably the spores you can see. This is one of the... They produce a variety of spores. It's a hugely complicated uh, lifestyle, a hugely complicated sex life as well. Oh, I mean, is, in there, is there? Is well, there time to go uh, into that? No, none at I, all. Uh, and it's too complicated and we should pass such things by.
0: Yeah, we should, absolutely. Absolutely.
1: We've climbed up through the wood. It's uh, there's no
0: paths here. It's all all rough tracking, um, but it's it's fairly easy going. It's uh, coppice, which is some fantastic hazel. Um, we've just seen a spectacular ash tree that was well absolutely coated in honey fungus right up to the honey fungus.
1: was yeah, honey and, fungus. Yeah, it's going 20 feet up. Yeah, feet up.
0: um And now we've just found something that I. I recognised, and um, but John
1: will probably tell us more about because he, I think, he called it something different. I uh, I love this particular fungus. In fact, I owe it quite a lot because it was a fungus that got me interested in fungi in the first place. Because oh really? it didn't make any sense to me. It's a black spherical, hemispherical lump growing on a bit of dead ash, uh, which is its normal habitat. And um, it doesn't. And it's sort of. It's very light. If you pick one, it's got very little weight to it. Um, and if you break it, it's crumbly and it has concentric rings. It's called cramp balls, king Alfred's cakes. Not as my daughter once suggested, King Alfred's balls. That's <laughs> completely wrong. Um, and uh, it just cracks off. This is a, a mature specimen, and you can see having the uh, the concentric rings oh, yes. there. Yeah, they're, yeah. they're actually they're growth rings. They're not annual rings. They just. Uh, growth rings, it's not even periodic they just build up these layers eventually you produce this um, surface this one's uh, definitely dead and crumbly now uh, and it's one of the so called pyrenomycetes Um, which is an ascomycete. That's the spore shooters. Uh, This is a pyrenomycete, which means it shoots its spores from little flasks. Pyreno means flask. Uh, If we looked at that under a good lens, you'd better see there's thousands of of little tiny pores on the surface. Uh, Those pores are the necks of flasks. And the flask is about, I don't know, about a third of a millimetre. Tenth of a millimetre in diameter, very small, and, um, uh, and uh, arranged on the inside of the flask are uh, hundreds, maybe thousands of asci, and each containing eight spores. Uh, one of those asci will grow to the neck of the flask, shoot its eight spores, and then withdraw. And then the next one go up, shoot its wow. eight spores, and withdraw. And that will and that will go worked time and time and time again I, uh, I captured one of these when it was producing its spores back in the summer and um, I put it on a piece of white paper on the dining room table I covered it over with a big bowl because you didn't want spores everywhere I knew it was live because you put your just touch it you can get a little bit of black on your finger you know that spores are being produced right. and came back the next morning and there was a corona of black um, wow. With, around it, you know, about about a foot in diameter, I guess. And this is where the spores have been ejected and you have, they follow a sort of reduced parabolic uh, arc. Um, only does it at night. Oh, does it? Because these are arid adapted species and uh, they actually are not very arid here. No, but, uh, no. Um, <clears throat> Most of the species uh, are found in, in, in uh, Central America, in Mexico, in the desert areas, uh, so they are dry adapted. Um, the reason they produce spores at night, which is, I think, rather fascinatingly called nocturnal ejection, and try not to snigger at that, uh, and... Uh, and they produce their spores at night because if you produce your spores in the daytime, they will just blow away, They'll, they may come in contact with a bit of wood, which it could reinfect but it's dry, it won't stick at night you get dew, uh, so it, the spores will stick, it's an extraordinary thing, it doesn't look very much but my goodness, there's so much happening there a, yeah. and I think it's such a shame people don't know this,
0: well it's a perfect, <laughs> a perfect example, and I, I know them as King Alfred's Cakes, and I I, I had no idea. I mean, I, to be honest, I'd, I'd always just seen them and seen the surface, which looks quite smooth. I didn't, I didn't even consider that what was going on beneath. But and all I knew, so I are
1: they good for lighting fires yes they are very good if you have one if you dry one out completely or indeed if you can even find one underneath a log where it's dry and uh, you just sort of crumble it loosely and get one of those fire striking irons yes. you get some sparks and they will actually set light to it wow. and if you blow it you'll get a little glow um, when it it can be a light but it won't it not only doesn't produce much smoke it doesn't you can't see a glow uh, and I'm probably not the only person who's done that to do a whole one uh, set fire to it thought that's gone out and put it in my pocket uh, because Ooh. you set fire to your pocket which, oh. is, <laughs> which is very amusing for everybody else watching, why is there smoke coming out of your pocket John? <laughs> and, uh, yeah they're, they're amazing, amazing. They are, yeah,
0: I'd, I'd be almost more reluctant to try that now that I know quite what's going on inside <laughs> it's incredible and you've also got a, a piece of wood that it's quite blackened. I'm not sure what that's from, but um... yeah. In
1: writing this book, I a lot of the stuff I knew, um, but there's some things I really didn't know. Some mysteries that I hadn't solved, and one of them is why does wood go completely black yeah okay things can go sort of dirty and maybe there's some humic acids there that make it uh, brown and uh, black and dirty but there was something about it it looks more like a coat of blackboard paint there's a little bit of wood here about a foot long and right at the base it does look as though it's had a coat of blackboard paint this, this is not the wood justice coloring in fact it's a layer and it is called a pleurosclerotial plate. A pleurosclerotial plate, which uh, I come to. I come to adore this. Style. I. I get every so excited every time I see. it I have got people with them with me, and I. I just spend. They sort of their eyes glaze over, as they're probably doing now, um, as I get very excited about it. Uh, it's if it's called it is a fungus it is caused yeah. by a fungus the fungus itself is in the wood if you break a bit of the black you can see it the actually it's just rotten but very bright wood inside yeah. and you can actually see it, it is a layer it's about uh, about half a millimeter yes. and, uh, thick maybe a bit a third of a millimeter uh, this is a protective layer that the Fungus lays down to keep the inside stable with moisture content and also to protect itself against invasion by other fungi. Fungi don't like competition, so this would be a single individual... So no other spores could penetrate... This, this, uh, plant. no, no, they can't. In fact, they the thing does, pleuris plates don't really rot down. I was in the new forest uh, a couple of weeks ago and I found a fallen ash tree. I mean, it was ancient fallen ash tree and uh, it was in the serious last stages of rot. Some, these grow to plates are also inside. Uh, they can also be inside um, that's called spalting and if you've ever been to one of the you know country fair and there's a wood turner there you'll always have a piece of beech turned into a bowl or a vase or, yes, yeah. or a lamp where you get these black lines against the uh, and it forms these beautiful patterns these are the edges part of the the edges of pleurosclerotial plates that form little cells or well, quite big cells within the wood they will, su- they will survive the rotting of the tree unless it get covered. I found uh, a beach log where the wood had rotted and you were left with these black honeycomb structures of pleuro- pleurosclerotial plates. <laughs> so incredible. I was so, uh, <laughs> well, I was so excited. I'm, I've never seen it go that far before no. and I got so excited to see it. Well, we've
0: stepped out of the coppice, which was lovely for a time. It was just a soft soft rain falling which sounded stunning as it just dripped through the trees there's a little tiny patch of blue sky and we've stepped out to the east i think of the coppice another lovely grassy slope dotted with dead thistles i think and a view across to the other side where the landscape
1: is presumably a little bit touched by the hand of man yeah but it was it was touched by the hand of man um continuously but it started a very very long time ago and really hasn't probably hasn't changed very much it may have got scrubbed up uh, over the years and then was cut back but generally speaking i, I suspect this has been like this since the iron age uh, oh, this wow. is this yeah. is pasture it's pretty well impossible to do anything else with it apart from pasture so uh, as pasture it would have been used and uh, you can see the mark of of the animals that walk across it these are the terracettes, basically little terraces of course Uh, and you can see these generally vaguely horizontal markings and they're not really trackways, they're just grazing paths, so they just walk around uh, on these little paths that inevitably get made by the uh, continual traffic of uh, sheep and sometimes cattle and and they graze from there these aren't sort of thoroughfares, you get those at the top of the hill and the bottom of the hill but uh, this is how they graze, They're, they're quite Uh, Interesting places, you get sort of fast growth on the edge of them, though not in the middle. Yes, tends to be a little bit depleted, uh, probably through uh, uh, compaction. Um, Terraces, uh, yeah. They're about uh, if you look look at them from above uh, with a with a map and measure them, they're about a meter across horizontally. They don't look that that wide. This is quite a steep slope, and it really is kind of even though we're, we're up a little bit from the valley bottom it does tower over us yes it, yeah there? it does it does you can tell this is good you can tell this is a good bit of grassland just by looking at the fact that it has these terraces. it means it's been grazed for a long time yeah uh, there are i think i counted them once there's about a thousand anthills <laughs> on, 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 covering the whole thing but most particularly on the lower slopes that shows uh, it hasn't been touched for, for Centuries, yeah, uh, and it really, it's the colour of the grass I like. Uh, because it isn't really grass. I mean, there is there is grass there, but it shows it's a really rich herbaceo- herbaceous mix of uh, of native species which are climatised to here. You get the diminutive species um, or diminutive varieties of uh, of fairly common species that you find in continually grassland, which just gets sele- selected out or selected in. So it's an amazing, absolutely amazing
0: looking. Looking piece of land, and and it'd be so easy to look past it as well,
1: and and not really consider just how how complex it is. Yes, it's it's complex in detail. It's a beautiful thing. Yes, it's it's a beautiful landscape, and that I think most people would appreciate is a beautiful landscape. A lot of people would be perfectly happy if it was a lovely bright green all over where it had been ploughed yeah. up. I mean, it would be possible these days to plough it. And they say, well, that's much nicer. But it's not. It's not. You know, a ploughed a up bit which has been reseeded will have a few, you know, a handful of species in there. This has probably got um, several thousand species of invertebrates, fungi, and plants, and indeed slime molds. Uh, of course, yeah, yes, of yes, course, yes. There'll be, yes. <laughs> there'll be lots of n- nematode worms and God, goodness knows what else. Um, yeah, this is. Uh, It's a thriving landscape, um, full of interest. Um, and I just kind of feel proud that I had a, a, a hand in. I didn't do any hard work, but it was me that started. You know, I, I take full credit for that. I think, I, really do. I think you should. Um, I think you should. And it's because I got to know it well. I know this place very well. Uh, we lived here for years. I've been coming up here for 40 years. It's a place I know intimately. And uh, and the, the better you know a place, uh, the closer you look at it. Not just as a beautiful landscape, but you look at it intimately the more you come to love it the more you come to love it the more prepared you will be to protect it and, and in this case it doesn't work for everybody. in this case it worked and i'm and you know i think people should give that a go i think that's such a perfect sentiment and a lovely
0: lovely notion and i think it's testament to yourself and to yeah that, that it's still here and it is but you're absolutely right i think you know I, i'm guilty myself of Of not looking what's on my doorstep and travelling a distance to to find things that are, you know, that are in a forest or a a, a landscape so far away. And this is close to my house. I've never been here. I'll certainly be coming back here. Um, Thank you so much for sharing it. You're welcome. It was a great pleasure. Thank you.
2: Life is a highway. John Wright, talking with our own Kevin Parr, deep in the wilds of Dorset. And, well, one takeaway for me is don't put King Alfred's cakes in your pocket. I'm delighted to say that Kevin Parr is joining us in the virtual podcast studio with our usual podcast favourites, Hannah and Jack, who helped me make this podcast. Kev, how lovely to see you. And you all, thank you very much for having me. Again, it's really nice to be here. Thank you. I can see Jack and Hannah in the actual real studio. Hello, friends. Hello. Hello. (laughs) Kev, brilliant to to have met John. And um, he's a a true countryman. Did you feel that, I mean, you sound like you found absolutely
0: loads of fungi out there. Yeah, we did. Which is probably inevitable with John. He's he's known for his knowledge of fungi. Um, We've bumped into each other a few times because we live quite locally. And I've been finding his his special places, secret places, over the years, and he's sort of come across me sneaking some of his mushroom. But, um, <laughs> so, so when I sort of knocked yeah. on his door, and it's he like farmer maggot, um, yeah, completely, yeah, <laughs> chasing me off with a pitchfork. But so he recognised, you know, it, it was names to faces and things. Um, but it's interesting that he is uh, he spends his entire walk looking down, um, and I'm generally looking up. Um, for birds, more. So, but we're also walking exactly the same pace, which is a good thing because most people hate walking with me because I'm just, I don't walk, I just sort of amble and then go and look at something in a bush or put binoculars to my eyes for a long time. And, um, but he was just the same pace, you know, looking at, at fungi and there were lots and lots of mushrooms. Um, it's mainly grassland. But the wax caps, which are stunning looking things, come in all shapes and colours and they're really shiny to look at. I think actually it was John who described them in a book that he said when he first saw a field of wax caps, it was as though a child had taken a box of toys and then thrown them down the hillside in a fit of of anger, which is sort of how they look. They're just all these different colours and just don't look real. And they look wet where the, the caps are sort of shiny, waxy; hence the name. But you've got all sorts of colours and snowy ones, which look like they're glazed. And and, he, and John, of course, is just reeling off all of the the um, Latin names. Just yeah. bosh, bosh. <laughs>
2: <laughs> are there still plenty of mushrooms out there to see? Yes,
0: there are, and there are. They will appear autumn, sort of when most will appear because it's damp and it's dark. You'll get certain species that will appear all winter. Species even in grassland, you'll get bluets that can survive till quite late. And in the woods, you'll have um, winter chanterelles, which are quite well named and can survive a few frosts. They can freeze and then and then thaw and and, and be okay. So that so you can see fungi all through the year. Um, but autumn's the prime time. And if you're later in the year coniferous woodlands can be better than deciduous because you've got more cover so um you can often see more under conifers just because a, they...
2: yeah a reason to go to a conifer not that i'm dissing conifer, conifer woodlands no well say, yes but exactly. they're not yeah. not the most biodiverse and they can be quite so dark not. and haunting well you mentioned chanterelles and I've always been a bit of a key, I'm a keen forager, but I've always stayed well clear of mushrooms. You know your mushrooms enough to find a few to eat, do Yeah, know, I've seen your tweets, and you're yes. still here. <laughs> you're still alive. I'm
0: still here. I've been married five times, um, and I always try them out on my wife first. No, not that. Um, <laughs> yeah. I um, now I I learned I t- took an interest, and then um, and then learnt all the ones that I could eat, all the ones that could kill me any that might vaguely look like one another. There's about 17,000 species, I think, in Britain, of fungi. 17,000? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, so, so I've learned, you know, I know, I, could, I probably know, you know, very confidently about 60 edible um, mushrooms, and I'll know the ones that, that can kill me. And and there's certain ones that I probably wouldn't ever bother looking for because they're just a bit too close in appearance. Um but I, I wouldn't ever, I think, well, the rule of thumb is never even touch a mushroom unless you know exactly what it is, you know its name. Because the really, the really deadly ones, which are often in the Amanita family, which are like the Death Cap and um, Destroying Angel and Panther Cap are some good names. Yeah, um, but of, even, there's, there's a hint there. That, uh, yeah, there is a clue to what, to what they might do to you. Um but even the spores can kill you and no one really knows how poisonous they are because um because you can't tell because you can't you can't really test them. Unlike Midsummer Murders, an episode which made me really cross when it was about a destroying angel and someone was poisoned with one and it was a cook or something. I just remember they ate this like um spoonful of, of stew that someone had chucked a destroying angel in, and within moments they were like, Aah! clutching their throat and then, you know, and, and fell over and died. And that isn't what happens. The poison takes 24 hours before it'll even touch you. And then you'll be ill, it goes through your system and then it, it sort of gets into your into your vital organs and then slowly destroys them as it goes back through your system and then comes back again. So then it finds your organs ready to be completely wiped out goodness that's a very graphic graphic description it's pretty horrible and even with hospital treatment you've got little chance really right so yeah it's it's something don't don't even don't take it lightly at all i mean it's serious there's a lot of and some of the most innocuous looking mushrooms can kill you um we found with john we found a, a log covered in um, funeral bells, which again are
6: <laughs> appropriately
0: named. When they
2: named these things, they must have had a few examples of exactly. where it had gone yes, wrong. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, deadly web Deadly webcap.
0: I mean, that again, you you probably wouldn't touch. Wow. You know, okay. so, so there's no real rule of thumb
2: with it either. So we should come with you then, if we if we all come foraging, it would be a good idea. Can we can we do that next year? Can yeah, you definitely. take us foraging, and we bring if we bring a frying pan and
0: some butter, and maybe some garlic. Can you do well, you that? mentioned can you... chanterelles. I've I've got a spot, and, and I've almost, I've not lost interest in it, but where part of the fun is finding the spots where you might find the really incredible mushrooms, which are the chanterelles and seps, I mean, the marquee species. And then having found them, it's almost a bit boring because I know when and where they're going to appear, and I can go and fill a basket. But they are so tasty, though. Oh, first chanterelles of the season, just,
2: off oh. Wow. Well, you're selling it to me apart from the sort of death bit. So you talked about um, dawdling when walking. Yeah. Are you. Yeah, I, I totally get that. How about you, Hannah and Jack? Are you, are you fast-paced or dawdler? Do you like to dawdle? Or do you get irritated with dawdlers?
6: I think it depends where I am. I get told a lot I walk fast, which I blame on the long legs. So I think it's a default <laughs> speed. And, and your youth. <laughs> <laughs> Oh not Okay, yeah. Um, it's 12. I'm 12, only 12. <laughs> uh, but I think, depending on where I am, if I'm somewhere where it's not just a noisy, busy town centre, I've got the speed on. If it's somewhere that is quiet, peaceful, a bit more relaxing, I then just, I kind of slow down and take my time.
2: How about you, Hannah? I, imagine, I think you're, I've walked with you. You're quite a dawdler. I like it. <laughs>
3: <laughs> yes, yeah, so I
5: was about to say, I am slow. Um, because, You're 86, isn't it? Yeah, it's true, it's me. Um, <laughs> I look at the ground all the time. I'm always looking for little tiny bits of pottery or tiny little flowers or tiny little creatures or what's that movement over there? Oh, it's a blackbird again. That sort of business. That for me is the joy of going out at all.
0: Yeah, I agree. I agree. Yeah,
2: I agree with that, definitely find yourself a dawdler and stick with them. Um, John John is obviously trying to turn us all into dawdlers with his book, which is the, kind of the reason for doing this podcast, which is A Spotter's Guide to Countryside Mysteries, which fits yeah. perfectly within our histories and mysteries season. Um, so, And that's full of, it's not just fungi, I think it's full of all sorts of uh, little signs and beautiful elements of nature that those who yeah. are, those fast-paced walkers and talkers
0: miss it all absolutely and and lots of um um uh, you know man made parts of the countryside and I think you know little um dew dew ponds and um strip lynchets and things like that that actually one thing that was interesting as well was the fact that um that I mentioned birds I mentioned red kites because um I'd seen where we walked I'd seen the next valley over I'd seen some kites recently which is still incredibly unusual down here and i I asked John if he'd seen any over over his home. And he he was pretty nonplussed. You know, he, he didn't really know what <laughs> looked to look for. No, and it was interesting because one of the reasons that um, he said he's not that interested in birds or butterflies, he added, was because there's so few of them. He said, you know, there's 57 species of butterfly. I mean, that's boring. There's no there's no challenge. So he likes the challenge of of really not knowing and really going deep into things. Whereas I'm the opposite. I, I, I'm happy, you know, learning the butterfly species. And... Well, when you've got a busy life, you haven't got
2: time to go through 17,000 <laughs> no, 17, no. mushrooms when we could be uh, ticking off 200 birds. But um, even that, I'm, I struggle to see new species of birds. But I did. I've got a bird story. In fact, I had a dawdle today. Didn't want to go out, really cold, but I had to take the dog. So I went down to the river, which is the usk. There was a bird singing, and there's not that many birds singing this time of year, late. November but it was really persistent and I thought I sort of it was quite low down near the water's edge I thought it must be a dipper and then I saw it and then I recorded it on my phone so have a little listen to if you haven't heard a dipper singing and I apologize for the quality it was my phone but um here's here's a little here's a little dipper
0: It's not that tuneful, but it's quite distinct I think it's quite um well you're you're in such such good habitat in in South Wales where dippers seem to to bob on every single stream and river, which is um we're right on the edge of
2: there I've seen a lot more this year actually, but he was singing i'm assuming it was a he uh he was thigh deep in the water, fishing and then he stopped and just sang for a bit um and whether that's territorial or. Just he's they sing in autumn, but I haven't heard a dipper sing like that before, so I don't think I have
0: i did i did know saw something interesting about dippers in that their bones are or well, the lower bones of the lower body and the legs are solid, unlike other birds, which are hollow, obviously to aid flying, you don't want heavy bones, but to aid walking around on the bottom of a stream, it's quite useful to have solid bones so they're, they're unique in that aspect and also their eyes they have um muscles that attach to the lens of the eye um so that when they go underwater the muscles contort the lens in order that they can see underwater as well as they can see
2: oh, above that's water. that's amazing i did not know that um i should sort of add if, if people don't know what dippers are they are like they're like little they look like little dumpy blackbird robin type yeah. thing with a white breast and they swim underwater well they walk underwater to catch yeah. aquatic prey so they're sort of really unusual um and you know they're quite hard to spot they do bob around uh, hence the dipper they sort of stand on a stone bob up and down but yeah really worth this time of year, looking out for them on any streams in the in the west of Britain, and then you get a. Few, did you say you get a few endorses? We're
0: we're right on the edge. We've we've got some on the local stream, but we're right on the edge of the range, so we do see them, but but nothing like further west. Yeah, sort of, They're more in the uplands, and um, it's, in fact, it's, it's an interesting thing. I wonder sometimes whether they're not so much in the more easterly river systems perhaps because of. Um, predators in pike maybe i, mean, I, th- I was thinking oh, yeah, pike maybe. probably A tasty it's probably snack yeah. Mm, yeah, yeah but yeah, but definitely. that's whether there's anything to that i don't know but they they're definitely uplands in they certainly like
2: foraging in those sort of stony riverbeds that you definitely yeah in, in the uplands the reason i mentioned dippers and i know that was an extremely long story but the reason i mentioned it something happened after it's something i've wanted to bring up in the plot chat with you guys to see it's that thing so when i I'd, I'd sort of Recorded the dipper, and then I saw someone coming along the footpath along the river and a big open field. So they were were sort of quarter of a mile away, and it's one of those things of, yeah. I always try and say a big cheery hello, and I did, and they just totally blanked me. Um, So it was a really weird thing. There's just two of us in this vast open space. I don't know whether they had earphones in or something, deaf or whatever. But uh, (laughs) normally people do say a big cheery hello, but it made me think of that whole etiquette of saying hello to strangers does that ever do you ever come across that Does that ever make you feel uncomfortable or had
0: any funny experiences I will say hello to people um quite often in fact well, I do generally talk to people but it can be a bit frustrating if they if they don't shut up (laughs) (laughs) you you might sometimes get a life story but you can also get some fascinating things uh, when I've stopped and talked and I like sharing things often Adders are a good thing to share. I often, um, people often ask me what I'm looking for in the spring if I'm looking for adders and then I tell them and then there's often a a sort of a recoil or a shock of, I've never seen an adder and you can say, well, there's one just there. (laughs) And, um, And then that can make people really open their eyes. That's a really good thing. Gosh, that's a good thing. That is a great thing, yeah. Do you have a dog? I think dogs sometimes, people are wary of other people without dogs if they're dog owners.
2: Yeah, I had a dog, had the dog with me. Um, He's quite badly behaved and um, well-known locally for jumping up and down on people. So uh, I tend to keep him on a tight
0: lead. So it could could have been your reputation that precedes you.
2: Yeah, true, (laughs) true. (laughs) Oh,
0: God, it's Fergus. Just walk, just got headphones on. How
2: about you, Hannah and Jack? Have you uh, had any, do you have any sort of tales to tell?
5: I always say hello. The biggest, brightest, cheeriest hello I can muster. But I did have one weird experience where I was was at home. So like bearing in mind, I've lived there for like 30 years and it was a quite a sunny day. And it was during lockdown where a lot of people like knew people around. And this man said, hel- so I said hello to him. He said, hello, enjoy your stay. And I was like, enjoy my stay.
2: <laughs>
5: it was just, it was fine. But also like, I don't feel like you need, needs to give me permission to enjoy myself at home in my place it was weird
2: so the other thing that we had a letter to the magazine about how you say hello and there's this thing about saying you can say hi hello or hello there which is that sort of I'm putting you in your place (laughs) kind of uh, and that's exactly it I found myself saying that and real and then I realized that by saying that you're sort of it's like ownership of this footpath and i know uh, like i'm i'm meant to be here and maybe that's a bad thing so i've i've reined it back and i just try and say a nice cheery and innocent hello but the hello there is just comes down. <laughs> it's like a, so maybe you need to say that when you get when you so Next people sense that you're you're not a visitor
6: i i have a i have a theory when i've been on walks and stuff in the past i think there's an equation that's the distance away from a car park the further away from a car park you are, the more likely someone is to say hello to you. I think the closer you are to a car park, most people just don't speak to you and you don't speak to them. And it's a bit of a weird zone. But the further out you get, everyone seems to open up a bit more and will say hello to you. So there's some equation there. The distance away from a car park equals more likely to say hello. <laughs> yeah, that's
0: that, brilliant. I can, yeah, I think there is a question, isn't there? I think as well, it's interesting. It's the distance. If you're approaching someone on a straight path, there's sort of little glances up as you're wondering at what point you acknowledge the other person too. Like, it probably matches in with the um, with the car park distancing issue. We walked actually with my niece and nephew in the summer that we hadn't seen for a long, long time, and um, my nephew's I think he's nine now, and and we're quite quiet and and um, you know chatty amongst ourselves, and then we passed some people, and um, and he suddenly just stepped sideways and bowed and said good day to you sir oh. <laughs> excellent,
2: yes. which is, which is excellent. that's well, what we should be, be doing be, I, I will do that um, well that's i mean that's good i'm glad that uh, you all sort of share some of those sort of the challenges of saying hello <laughs> <laughs> one of the one of the things well if if any listeners out there do see us in the countryside kevin Dorset. Hannah and Gower, Jack in Bristol, and me uh, in the Brecon Beacons.
5: Make sure you bow.
2: Yeah, bowing is good. No, <laughs> no, please say hello. <laughs> We'd love, a, nice big cheer, a nice big cheery hello. If if you don't see us, you can get in touch with us via our, my email address, which is editor at countryfile.com. Please send us thoughts, likes, and all sorts of chat, anything about mushrooms, anything about um, the countryside that you'd like to share with us, and we would love to share it with other listeners through the podcast. I think that's probably it for this episode. Um, We've got one more history and mystery. I'm out actually in Somerset talking with the historian Amy Jeffs about her new book Storyland. And then after that, it's Christmas time. So join us for all these lovely episodes. Kev, thanks so very much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. And Hannah and Jack, delightful as ever. So from me and the podcast team...